Welcome to season four of the Teacher Collaborative Podcast. This season, we're talking about teacher leadership and introducing you to teachers with all kinds of expertise. We're also rotating hosts so you can meet the staff who keep the Teacher Collaborative going. Here's today's episode. My name is Randall Wilkerson. I am the teacher in residence at the Teacher Collaborative. On today's episode, I'm joined by Garcy Champagne. She teaches humanities and ESL at Boston Adult Technical Academy. I first met Garcy through our teaching lives, and it's been a pleasure to get to know Garcy as a teacher and a friend, and to also work with Garcy this year with our Educator of Color Affinity Groups and more. So welcome, Garcy. It's so nice to have you on our podcast today. Thank you, Randall. Thank you for having me. You know, you've been a teacher for for quite a while at this point, and I think it would be great for folks to know about your teaching path, what teaching has been like for you at the Boston Adult Teaching Academy. I've been working within the Boston Public Schools for over 10 years now. I feel like I lost count after 10. I think it's like 11 or 12. (laughs) And I've been at a small alternative high school called Boston Adult Technical Academy, And I like to say that it's the best kept secret within the Boston Public Schools. It's a tiny school. We serve students who are between the ages of 18 to 22 years old. Most of our students are recent immigrants into the country from countries like Haiti, Guatemala, Cape Verde, Dominican Republic. We have a lot of folks who come from Central and South America, as well as parts of the Caribbean. And some of our students come from parts of Asia, just everywhere, really, Northern Africa. So I've been at that school since my teaching journey began. And I've stayed there intentionally and purposefully because I really feel at home at that school. When I'm at that school, I feel that the students reflect me, that they reflect the people that I was raised around. I feel like I am amongst my people. And it's been a pleasure for all these years because, you know, working in BPS, you hear all kinds of things. But I can truly say that, like, I work with the most amazing staff. It's really collaborative. Folks are always advocating for students at every level. We're not perfect. We have our issues, as with every school, things that we're systematically working on within our school. But we really have a great team of folks who are, like, diving right into figuring it out. So that's where I've been. And as I've gone through the years at that school, I've learned a lot through teaching and then eventually becoming a teacher leader. So when I am at VATA, I'm part of the time um, within my own classroom where I'm teaching ESL. And another part of my day, a lot of the times, has to do with evaluating and coaching teachers. I'm also working constantly with our school administrator and instructional leadership team to create professional development and workshops specifically around culturally and linguistically sustaining practices. So I do a little bit of everything. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. So I would love to hear more about your teacher leadership. Not only are you doing evaluation and coaching for teachers, but you're also doing professional development around culturally and linguistically sustaining practices. I would love to hear first about your coaching. What is it like to be teaching and be coaching others at the same time? The best part about 
teaching and coaching at the same time is the fact that I can relate to my teachers on a level that I think that an administrator who isn't in the trenches like, I just don't think that they always have that lens. And if they have that lens, it's just it's just not the same as actually like experiencing something for yourself. Because a lot of the times, like there's a stigma around evaluation that it's scary and it's like, be careful because it might be, you know, a gotcha. You don't know what people are going to put on your evaluation, basically. Right. And so there is not always this openness for folks to like truly, truly like take agency to say, like, I can be vulnerable, like, this is what I'm really working on. And I'm not quite sure where to go. And so I come in and I see myself as a second set of eyes. And we're two teachers figuring out something that the teacher that I'm supporting has chosen or is invested in. Being a teacher enables me to approach it from that perspective, because that's what I would have always wanted when I teach, like when I have an evaluator, that's what I yearn for. That's what I haven't always had is like another pair of eyes who trusts my expertise, who knows that I'm the one who's in the classroom, who knows my students best, and that we can sit at the table together and problem solve together what's best for my students, as opposed to someone who's disconnected, coming in just to tell you all the hundreds of things that you've done wrong. It's so subjective, right? And so I think it's really important that as an evaluator and as a coach, that it's the teachers that you're supporting who's in the driver's seat and you're supporting them and not just kind of there to judge. Yeah, that's such a powerful outlook on, you know, how coaching and evaluation works and really pushes growth for educators. How did you realize that you wanted to be a coach? I have done so many kinds of leadership roles throughout the years. And a lot of them incorporated going out to PDs and going out to workshops and bringing that information back to your school. And then it was my responsibility to create those workshops, embed them into professional development that linked to the school's goal and to kind of like share that information with the rest of teaching staff and other staff at our school. So I think at a certain point, it was kind of like, well, if I'm going to be like sharing this information, wouldn't I be even more effective if I can have more direct contact with the teachers as they're trying these new things, if it's a new strategy that we're trying out to be able to be in the classroom and to see and to be that other pair of eyes and ears, in particular, if it's something that I've been working on for a long time myself. It just felt really great to be able to have that exchange, like in a more authentic way than just here's this little presentation from a PD I took, you know, it felt more organic to be exchanging information like that. And also to kind of like be able to tie in to whatever the school's goal may be that year. So, you know, just kind of thinking about your professional development journey, you also shared that you've done a lot of work with culturally and linguistically sustaining practices in your building. And, you know, since I have the privilege of being your friend, I also know that you've done a lot of that work at your daughter's school as well. I would love to hear about your expertise in CLSB for short. Yeah, thank you. So in the professional realm, I always struggle with the balance of being the person of color who's made responsible to like do all the anti-racist work right? And being able to like know when to lead and when to pull back for my emotional well-being. 
And because racial equity work is something that I've always been passionate about, it's been my life. When I started to do the CLSP workshops for myself and come back to my school to kind of like share that information, one of the things that I thought was really important in bringing CLSP work to my school was to start to have conversations about race within staff. Because I realized in just sharing information that I was getting from these workshops and wasn't enough, it was necessary before a teacher felt comfortable with embedding practices and curriculum in order to be able to infuse your curriculum and your practices with CLSP. You have to be comfortable talking about and acknowledging systems of oppression that exist to begin with. You know, how can you, for instance, support a student in developing a strong sense of self when having conversations about race is taboo or you still feel like that's not something that you can delve into? But we are at a school that is almost all black and brown in terms of our students. And so I felt like everybody at every level, it was important that they understood like their own identity first and foremost. And so we kind of began, I had to kind of scale back from the workshops that I took and to say, well, where are we as a school? Okay. It looks like we're not all comfortable talking about race and how can we serve and how can we say like a part of our mission is social justice if we can't have open and honest conversations about race and the ways that our identities impact our students, like the way that we interact with them, the way that we perceive them. And so we started having just affinity groups and conversations about like specific terms that we needed to understand, like what is race? What are the systems in education that have enabled the inequities that we see ahead of us delving into the history? Because I think like sometimes when you're becoming a teacher, we have a lot of observations to make sure that like we're keeping kids behaviorally in check or that everybody like looks like they're being productive, but we don't take enough time for teachers and staff and anyone really working in the capacity of like supporting students in a school has to understand like that history and how they play a role currently as they're working with students. So we did a lot of work around that. And then we began to be able to kind of be intentional with the choice of materials that we're having, the activities that we're having, the resources that we're using and in instruction, the texts that we're choosing, that we're making sure that they reflect the students who are in front of us. So that's some of what I've worked on at my school. And at my daughter's school, she goes to a small elementary school in Boston. And the way that I got involved at her school in doing anti-racist work is honestly like the fear that every black and brown parent has. I was afraid that she maybe wouldn't belong. You know, we really just wanted her to have the ease of being around kids who look like her because we've both grown up in Boston and we, we know what that feels like to feel like you don't belong and to have an identity crisis at five years old when you go to kindergarten. And we said, no, like we want her to be around kids who are like herself, but unfortunately it's Boston. And depending on what neighborhood you're in, it may not be you know, a school that has all of the right resources to truly support kids. And so I moved to, to Rosendale and she got into this school and it was like, okay, well, it's a great school. And so my fear made it that I really needed to get involved because I wanted to make sure that I was going to do whatever it took to protect my child, 
to make sure that she was in a place that saw her for who she was, saw kids like her for who they were, and a school who, even if it wasn't perfect, was at least working towards equity in a really real way. And so I kind of poured myself into that work there. And it's been a really wonderful journey. And this year, shout out to you, Randall, and to the Teacher Collaborative, because of the work that you're doing to support teachers like me, I was able to learn about a grant from Nellie May, and I was able to receive that. And now the school has a fund with which we're starting affinity groups for children, because a lot of the work that I've been doing with them is facilitating conversations about race amongst families, amongst staff and families. And now for the first time, like we can make sure that the work that we're doing at a more macro level within the school is directly impacting children. So that's a little bit about that. That's awesome. You know, I really love that you've leaned into your expertise and taking your leadership out of your own school and into your life, your community and into your family's life. And just thinking about teacher leadership itself, do you feel ever hesitant to call yourself an expert or do you feel comfortable as a teacher to say like, hey, I'm an expert at this thing other than teaching? You know, That's a really great question. I ponder it often for different reasons. One of the reasons why I'm constantly kind of asking myself that question is because imposter syndrome is real. And so sometimes, even though I know I've worked tirelessly to advocate for my students, to work my way into leadership positions that would enable me to make different levels of impact, I sometimes... I'm reminded when I'm in those rooms that like, are you really supposed to be here? I kind of shadow the line sometimes of like reminding myself when I've experienced something and I've learned something and I know something or I can connect to my student in a way that enables me access to know certain things about them. Like it's okay for me to like be confident in that expertise when I have really figured something out and I believe in it or I know something and I'm trying to impart that to someone that I'm working with. And then there are times when, for my own growth, I realize, wow, like there's so much more that I need to figure out how to do. And I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly looking for things that I feel like are going to push me to grow. One of the things that's helped me to grow the most is building community with other teachers. Something that I felt like I've been missing a lot is having connections with other Black women teachers within my district or like within teaching. It felt so good that time when you invited me to your um, affinity group to kind of like be able to connect with other people. And I've been blessed enough to know you and to know other like really amazing teachers that like I'm able to kind of problem solve and build community with and who are in teaching positions that are teacher leader positions as well. And so they kind of understand the spaces that we have to exist in the way that you have to kind of like my identity is always at the forefront of my mind when I am in a leadership space. And so I guess to answer your question, I straddle the line and I'm starting to come to the understanding of like knowing, yes, I believe in this thing or I'm confident that I know this and I can do it. And so therefore, like I can push for something that I know is going to be a better impact for my students. And I'm starting to know when there's times where I don't know. And that those are times when I I think to myself, like, who do I know who knows better than me? And I reach out and I'm able to connect with those folks, people that I trust and whose values align with mine, who I know are in the good fight and 
trying to protect our babies out there in our schools and to kind of give them access to succeed once they leave us. Yeah. So kind of hearing what you're saying, it it brings this question to mind, like, you know, if you could wave a, a magic wand and make a change for Black women educators, what would that change be? Huh. Oh, man, that's a really loaded question. And the kinds of things that would help me like to begin to even answer it would be like sitting in a room with wine with my girlfriends and like brainstorming it, you know, like and and we will come up with some good things because we are constantly having these conversations. One of the things is constantly like being questioned, like not being trusted for your expertise. And like sometimes I feel like I'm constantly kind of having to work double in my brain because I have to like, if something happens, that's very clearly obvious to me at work or in a space that's like white or white led, where I'm also having to collaborate or like be in leadership as well within that space. I have to process my feelings first if it was something that kind of hit me deep or that hurt because maybe the person had good intentions and the impact wasn't necessarily positive. I have to compose myself first because I can't look like the angry Black woman. I need to like compose myself and then translate, okay, what's the speak in order to be able to even get someone to hear me out? I feel like there's so much I have to do internally before I can even find the voice to be heard. And so like, I feel like that's something that I would hope that Black women didn't necessarily have to face in positions of leadership and all positions everywhere, because it's a common theme amongst me and my girlfriends, not feeling like we're fully seen for what we can do and always having to find our voice to speak up. I wish that we could kind of just lead with the same kind of freedom that, you know, other leaders get to lead with. Yeah, I think that that's really powerful and something that I can empathize with. Just wanting to be seen, trusted, heard, felt. Yes, felt. Absolutely. I oftentimes see and hear of Black women, Black men in schools being leaned upon to execute certain discipline. But yet when it comes time for the decision making, right, the folks who have the relationship with students and who have been doing the checking or fighting them for their own good and loving them toughly. They're capable of so much more than that, that they've got ideas to contribute and they're not always necessarily listened to. And so it's kind of like we're the workhorse, but not necessarily the person who can problem solve. Someone else, it feels, is always constantly making decisions for you or making decisions for your kids without considering all of the voices and all of the perspectives. And you've got to like really, really fight to make sure that like we can expand to even hearing different perspectives so that we're making sure that we're really like meeting the needs of kids equitably. That's really powerful and it needs to be said. So thank you for sharing that. Given the fact that you've been able to develop this expertise, develop this perspective on, you know, what it's like to be a Black woman teacher, to be a Black woman leader, how do you see yourself a year from now, like, you know, with all of this expertise you've developed, how do you see yourself carrying it forward? So I, I recently decided to go back to school. So a year from now, I'll probably still be doing that, <laughs> pursuing my next degree in educational leadership. I think I have really begun to see, wow, like I can have an impact in my classroom. I can have an impact within my school. I can have an impact within my daughter's school. 
And even though I don't know everything and I don't feel confident about everything, just trying, like if you see a gap, at least attempting, that's kind of what I see myself doing is doing my part in the freedom fighting. I'm hoping that I can continue to support my school and I'm hoping to continue to support whatever school my daughter goes to. They're going to gain me if they want me. And also supporting other schools is something that I'm looking forward to being able to do as well as I continue to kind of grow in leadership. I'm really, really loving the ability to kind of support schools and supporting families to tackle conversations about race, to have explicit conversations with their children, to literally like create scenarios about situations that have come up and how to approach that with our children, whether it's the moment it happened or a week after it happened and a year or a lifetime of learning that you want to make sure that your child is able to kind of have. So like, I've really been loving the ability to do that. And I hope to continue being able to do it throughout different schools, different orgs who are opening up as well, who are ready to take the charge that even though it's not necessarily comfortable, if we're seeing that we're serious about making change, about being anti-racist, that it's not just a trend. All right, like I'm ready to do the work and pull up my sleeves and have these conversations. Like that's the basic, basic, basic minimum that any of us should be doing if we're really out here saying that like we want to tackle anti-Blackness. Thanks. Well, I'm excited to hear about how school goes. You say you're getting a degree in educational leadership. Is it a master's, doctorate? What, what kind of program? It's a doctoral program and it's been a very long time coming, but becoming a mother and becoming a new teacher made me have to kind of put it on pause. And kind of the more I grew in leadership, the more I feel like I I need to know. Like I never thought I'd want to be a student again, but I don't think it's necessarily the being a student part that I am excited about. It's kind of like the ability to just like have permission to burrow in and and do your own research and learn to grow in in an area that you really want to grow in. I just wanted to take the time to see if you had any questions for me about what I do here at the Teacher Collaborative. I know that you and I both share in the identity of teacher leader. I know that this year you've moved now into a different kind of role in leadership, but still a role where you're supporting teachers. Could you say a little bit about how you're supporting teachers now and how you're giving them a platform to show their work through your work with the Teacher Collaborative? Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed just getting to know teachers and their individual journeys through their careers. And what I really enjoy doing once I meet teachers is encouraging folks to really own that title of expert, person with experience, and, you know, give them a platform to honor the work that teachers do. So social media has been a great way to do that. Before I started as a teacher in residence with the Teacher Collaborative, I just had a Facebook, no Instagram, no Twitter. But now I'm managing those platforms for the Teacher Collaborative and LinkedIn as well. And pretty much what I'm doing is looking for opportunities to highlight what teachers are doing. And I love that if it's highlighting teachers who are working with us or highlighting teachers who are just doing cool things across Massachusetts. I love amplifying that because I think, you know, we need to spend more time sitting with the folks who are with students every day because you all are the ones really with that expertise. So through social media, I try to just make it a platform about teachers. Then in the Educator Exchange, which is this online community we have for Massachusetts educators, we're over 500 teachers now, which is really awesome. 
I just love cultivating a community for teachers to exchange information, right? When you get a bunch of experienced folks in one place, I think there's such a wealth of knowledge that creating those opportunities for people to come together, talk, share ideas, learn, grow is really powerful. So connecting teachers and elevating teachers in their work is definitely one of my favorite parts of being the teacher in residence here this year. That's amazing, Randall. That's definitely a different type of freedom fighting. I appreciate you for that. Thank you. So that about wraps us up for today. It was such a pleasure, Garcy, getting to know about you and your work as a teacher, as a mother, as a freedom fighter. And, you know, I'm excited for everyone else to learn about the great work you're doing as well. Thank you so much, Randall. Thanks for joining us for today's conversation. You can learn more about the programming we offer by visiting our website, theteachercollaborative.org, or by following us on social media, at The Teacher Collab. That's collab with one L. And if you enjoyed this show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to today's guest and to all the awesome teachers out there who show up with love, creativity, compassion, and energy. Thanks, as always, to Teacher Ben Truboff for our theme music, The Dusty Pencil Sharpener. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. And thanks to our amazing producer, Robert Scaramuccia, for translating our vision into a high-quality podcast, even over Zoom. <laughs>